The Visitors from Maida Vale by Patrick Lau Episode 6 Flying the Coop A week after we received the Home Office letters which granted my visitors asylum in the UK, we went to see Bernard Simons to ask if he would write to the High Commission of Australia to seek asylum for them there. Lysuk and Lysam brought their solicitors some fruit and chocolates to thank him for his help so far. Bernie Simons agreed to represent them after hearing that they might have a better future in Australia since they had no close relatives here in the UK. He also included their daughter and son-in-law who were then still hiding in Japan as a sort of joint application. At this point, I thought I should openly mention the fees we owed him and to this day I am so touched that he would not accept any money from either myself or them. However, he would send an invoice to us to see if their relatives in Hong Kong and Australia would send the money to pay for it. It was an astonishingly small charge. I soon received a pretty card expressing sincere thanks from Becky, together with a cheque to settle the lawyer's fee and some extra towards my visitors' day-to-day expenses. There was silence over any other plans they might have for their uncle and aunt, now stranded in the UK. I left for India in November with my three months' worth of luggage for filming in tough terrains and also for my subsequent stay in Hong Kong with my parents and sister. We said goodbye at my front door and in that moment their sad smiling faces reminded me of my own parents waving farewell to me every time I leave Hong Kong. Filming the documentary of how the British mapped the whole of the Indian subcontinent over a period of 60 years in the 19th century took me from South India right up to the ruins of Sir George Everett's house in Dehradun and then way up to the Himalayan foothills. I always love filming abroad. It's unpredictable and exciting. The feeling of adventure binds you and the film crew and creates a special shared commitment to make the project work. It is so absorbing that you forget any troubles at home. At first, I rang my house guests every few days, then it became increasingly difficult for me to get to a phone. We also ran out of things to say to one another especially with Lysam, as I still had difficulties understanding her spoken English over the phone. I thanked them for the Chinese medicine, as it was put to good use when I caught the classic Delhi Belly. One day when I called home, Lysuk told me that Lysam is out during daytime. This was quite a surprise. Where does she go? Looking for work. I was rather puzzled as to how and where she would be looking for work. I could not but admire that lady and was rather pleased that at least one of them was getting out of the house during the day, no doubt still wearing her dark glasses in the grey winter. What about you? Are you doing the same thing? 
My tone of voice must have sounded more like a reprimand. <sighs> that familiar sigh. Nobody would want me. I wondered whether her search for work was also because their funds were running low. I would not accept any payment of any kind from them, but we had talked about whether their relatives in Hong Kong should start thinking about contributing to their welfare. I decided that I should meet Lai Suk's relatives, including their niece Becky, during my stay in Hong Kong to discuss the future. When I met up with Lai Suk's two relatives in Hong Kong, I felt a sense of disquiet. Becky, whom I knew as my sister's childhood school friend and her cousin Akun, took me to tea at the expat conclave of Stanley, which is one of the most pleasant seaside areas in Hong Kong. It is a genteel kind of a bubble of British life. Oh, gracious curved veranda with those fans. I almost see Graham Greene in a white suit and pipe. And we had cucumber sandwiches and then cream cakes, all the rest of British high tea. I think it was also the right place to talk about a very tense subject. And they are very nice to me, Becky and Akun. Very complimentary what I've done for their aunt and uncle. And after the cucumber sandwiches, they say, we'll see what happens to their Australian application. I said, but in the meantime, they're staying with me. What should we be doing? Uh, difficult. They genuinely wanted to help their aunt and uncle to escape. But like all of us, they had no idea what to do. Absolutely none. I admit that part of the problem was my own wishy-washy kind of liberalism. I could not say to Becky and her cousin that I was going to kick their relatives out of my house on my return. I also could not lose face and make them lose theirs by getting angry about the whole situation in the genteel setting of afternoon tea at an elegant seafront cafe. How very Chinese, how very British, how very Hong Kong. I got back to London in January 1990. Lai Suk and Lai Sum, like my family in Hong Kong a month earlier, greeted me with an affectionate exclamation that I had become as brown as an Indian after working two months on the subcontinent. Brown skins are traditionally not admired by the Chinese. I could see that they were now much more relaxed and at home since I'd been away and they had had the house to themselves. Naturally, they already had dinner prepared for me. Although it was against the previous house rules, I was grateful not to have to cook after such a long journey. When I looked out of the kitchen windows, I saw that they had tended my garden plants very diligently and cleared the autumn leaves. But I also noticed something unusual on the garden fence that divided my neighbour's garden from mine. A row of grey carpet squares. What are those? Oh, 
when we were doing our little walk after supper the other night, we see these carpet squares were just dumped outside the pavement next to the dustbins. They are all good quality and we wash them using the garden hose and they are hanging to dry. Will come in useful. This information did not go down well. I suddenly reverted to the landlord and asked them to take them down tomorrow as my neighbours would not be amused by these unwanted ornaments amongst their garden gnomes. Lysom then broke the news that there had been a burglary in my house while they were out walking after dinner one evening. They said the burglars had messed up the house, but they couldn't see anything missing, so they hadn't called the police. They were very apologetic, but since nothing significant seemed to have been taken, I thought nothing more of it. What I did have to put to the back of my mind was that after the thieves have ransacked the house, Lysuk and Lysum have carefully restored every single personal item back in its place, both in the bedroom and my study. This necessary invasion of my privacy made me feel a bit uncomfortable. The day after I arrived home, I woke up late in the morning and noticed that Lysum was not in the house. This had never happened before I left for India, and I asked Lysuk where she was. She's working. I was stunned. It turned out that she decided to walk into the family planning clinics and hospitals in Wandsworth and volunteered to help as she had experienced from her previous employee. Tooting Hospital referred her to St George's and she was working there processing data in the family planning unit. Lysuk was still very guarded whenever the subject of money came up, but I think she got paid nominally by the hour and also her travel costs. How that woman with her broken English had managed to find herself work was impressive. She had gone through so much in life and was fearless when it came to survival. She must have been rejected and dismissed so many times when offering her service, but with her wide, toothy smile and typical Shanghai swagger, she had backed herself this job. When she came home that night, I warmly congratulated her, but I noticed that she was still wearing those see-through white nylon summer pumps that she had when she stepped into my house for the first time. Now there was a distinct split near the area round the toes. I did not want to humiliate or embarrass them. So I just pointed out with an all-purpose Chinese exclamation of surprise to prefix a hint. Aya Laisam, it is dangerous wearing those in the winter when the pavements are damp or when you are rushing for the bus. She did not take the hint. I do not take buses as I have no idea where they are going. I just walk. It is okay. During the ensuing week, I found it hard to tolerate Lysuk hovering all day in my house and smoking in the dining room. The enforced home sharing again brought out the uncharitable spirit in me. 
The pond life in the darker part of my soul serviced quite quickly. We were in the middle of talking about my meeting with the relatives in Hong Kong when, out of the blue, he announced, "They have invited me to have a meeting with them." Who has invited you to meet? My ex-colleagues at the embassy. A stony silence. My film colleagues always say that I had an ability to show rage without saying anything. It was not a skill that was cultivated in my profession, but a response to the racial abuse I experienced when I first arrived in this country and learned to stay silent but look deadly. How did they manage to get in touch with you? When I was at the embassy, I had a few meetings with Mr. F, who is an advisor to the British Telecom International. When you were away, I got calls from him, and he invited us to have dinner at his place. He even sent a car to pick us up. Alarm bells started ringing in my head. Wait, how did he know where to call you? Silence. The atmosphere in the dining room became like one in the police interview room. I picked up his cigarette packet and took one from it and lit up. Lai Sam broke the silence by using my Chinese name. Thailand, we caught him. We had to do something. We did not know what to do. We have been staying at your house, eating your food. And we still cannot find our future. He is a kindly gentleman. He cried when we met up, and he is so sympathetic to our situation. Did he ask you to get in touch with the government? No, we did not. Is that true? We really did not. We were invited to a few more dinners at his place. We just had a good time reminiscing about Beijing before Tiananmen, but another associate who worked with us, an accountant, gave us a mouthful, saying we must have been selling secrets to get asylum so quickly. Mr. F defended us. So, you knew each other back then, and he is a frequent visitor to China. Yes, he does a lot of business there and elsewhere in the world. Have you gone back to the embassy for your meeting? No, Mr. F just rang last week to tell us that his friends at the Chinese embassy really want us to meet to talk things over. Any further details about this possible meeting? No. Mr. F says they are very sympathetic, and you both. How do you feel about it? Lai Suk turned to me and said, "We are getting nowhere with getting a place to live, a job. We'll have to wait till we get a residency or citizenship before we get any benefits." I thought the British government would offer me a post after helping us to escape. But we are now living like ghosts in this country. 
As Lysok is speaking, I suddenly remember the burglary that they have just told me happened in my absence. I shudder. Then I blurt out the first words that pop into my head. I wonder if the thieves left any Chinese fingerprints. They look at me in alarm. I leave for bed without saying another word. But now I'm grappling with all that I have learned this evening. I wonder, have we been under surveillance all this time? And what exactly is this Mr. F up to? The next morning, I told them that I was surprised and shocked that they rang their friend Mr. F at BT without telling me. I did not want to control them, but after all these months of secrecy and reclusive existence, it did seem a bit odd that they would reach out to this person, who obviously has such close connections with the Chinese government before the Tiananmen massacre, and continue to do trade with them afterwards. I also told them that they should not go for that meeting with the Chinese officials. The Chinese government under Chairman Deng was still trying to deal with the repercussions of Tiananmen, and I was very suspicious as to why they might want to repatriate two dissidents who would no doubt be treated as traitors. History has shown that the Communist Party does not forgive easily. I also found myself saying that I did not want to be associated with two dissidents. Who are now negotiating terms for their return with that regime? I expressed concern that through their actions and those of the BT man, my details had been exposed, and I would now be under scrutiny by the Chinese government. I was not fearful, just annoyed. The weeks that followed were strained for all of us. When they went out for their walks in the dark, I often wondered whether they were being picked up by a car to have a rendezvous with Mr. B. T. But I was too polite to ask. I could not possibly treat them like a controlling parent, but I could also not suppress my own frustrations of being trapped in this situation. The stress they must have felt in these bleak, wintry times also brought them out in rashes and swelling glands. I took them to the local GP, but then heard their offhand comments, saying doctors in China are much better than those here. This grated like hell with me. I began to be paranoid about telephone calls made during my absence, and even wondered whether my telephone line had been tapped. To this day, I have no idea. To alleviate the pressure I was feeling, I decided to finally break my secrecy. On hearing about my house guests, my parents in Hong Kong were immediately worried about my involvement. Every Chinese family had terrible memories of the Chinese authorities of the past, and this fear stayed with them. My parents were bewildered as to why I would help two strangers. My sister began to ask Becky, her old school friend, to really do something to find a solution for her uncle and aunt. 
I think it gradually dawned on Becky and all the relatives that their high-flying uncle had actually very little knowledge about asylum and world politics before they made that momentous decision. Everybody who had heard our story for the first time reacted with the same sense of outrage about Tiananmen, but no one could offer any practical advice about how two refugees could start a new life in London. But about a week after I returned from India, came the news that they had been waiting for. Bernard Simons rang to say that Australia had accepted their application for asylum and also told them that their daughter and son-in-law were invited immediately to apply as a family unit. When can we go? Lysa quietly asked. There did not seem to be any sense of joy or wild excitement from him. I said openly that it was wonderful news and Australia would be a great destination as they already had some relatives who settled there and also they'll be closer to the ones in Hong Kong. We barely suppressed euphoria about regaining my own freedom and independence. I enthused about Sydney where I had worked before. Lai Suk was still downbeat and fearful about the future, but I reminded him that they would be carving out a new life as a family, which they had no chance of doing here in the UK. Everything happened very quickly after that. There was a chorus of encouragement from the relatives in Hong Kong and Australia. They urged the couple to make the move straight away so they could make their first steps in the new promised land during the warm, sunny days of an Australian summer. I doubt whether my house guests needed much encouragement to escape the cold, drizzly London winter. The decision was made at once when their family and friends invited them to stay in Hong Kong and celebrate the Chinese New Year with them en route to Australia. So, in the last few days of the Year of the Snake, we prepared for their departure. Simple large plastic holdalls were added to their luggage collection. I'm sure Lysam gave me a wink when they packed the grey carpet squares they have found in the neighbourhood with a look that said, Told you they'd come in useful. On their last night in my house, we cooked up a feast and I made sure we had no leftovers. I still remember the moment when the three of us quietly said farewell in the narrow hallway of my house. Their big red suitcase was packed and sitting on the tiled floor. Their Air China flight bags once more slung across their shoulders. Dressed in their most formal outfits, and with their hair all attended to the evening before, they looked like first secretaries of the Chinese embassy again. They thanked me quietly, and we shook hands rather awkwardly, repeating the phrase, which means, take good care, good care. I see them off in their taxi, close the door, and find myself on my own again in the house. 
In the silence, my thoughts range back over the past year, and I find myself wondering if I did the right thing in helping them to defect. Chinese history in the last hundred years has seen so many upheavals, civil wars, and disasters, catapulting its people to seek refuge in all corners of the world. My visitors from Maida Vale were involuntary actors in another all too familiar episode of this long running saga. I go upstairs to their bedroom and find a letter addressed to me. The note paper is headed King's Assisted Conception Unit, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. That's where Lysum had been working. It is written in the most elegant old fashioned Chinese by Lai Sok, ever the effete scholar. This is what it says Mr. Chak Lam, by the time you are quietly enjoying your delicious home cooked dinner tonight, listening to beautiful classical melodies, or watching television to relax after your busy working day, we would have already departed your lovely residence and may even have flown over the British Isles. It has been eight months, during which time we have no doubt brought you countless disturbances. The change in the environment was really too great for us. This is not an excuse, but this, in addition to my fragile character, Caused you much discomfort. For this, I feel very sorry and hope you can forgive and understand. Thank you very much for the great dinner last night. As we say goodbye, we would like to wish that everything will go well for you and that you will have success in your work. Please take good care of yourself. Thank you again for everything. The note is signed in their full names and is dated 1st of February 1990. The quaint formality of their words, incongruously laid out on the headed note paper of the family planning unit, makes me chuckle. The letter is written with grace and sincerity but all raw emotions are kept firmly under wraps. I look round the room. No red suitcase. No sounds of her shuffling shoes or his deep sighs. The house feels empty without them. A couple of weeks later, I received my first letter from them, telling me in detail about their short stopover in Hong Kong. They have had an emotional reunion with Becky and all their relatives, and then they went to pay respect at their ancestors' graves. When they arrived in Sydney, then enjoying summer sunshine as predicted, they met their other cousins who gave them a tour of the city. Lysa is already bemoaning the lack of opportunities for him to find a profession in his newly adopted country. 
In August, I find fifty pounds cash hidden under the mattress in their former bedroom. I wonder whether they had hidden the cash there after the burglary. I forwarded to him. Their thank you letter comes with the exciting news that their daughter and son-in-law have arrived to join them. They even got a mortgage to put down the deposit for an old house in the suburbs. Have they finally stopped being visitors? I wonder. As time goes by, I lose contact with Lysuk and Lysam, only hearing occasional reports from their niece Becky. The whole episode gradually becomes a distant memory. Thirty years and several house moves later, I find a box containing old, discarded TV scripts while rummaging through a cupboard. Amongst them is a bundle of correspondence tied up with old rubber bands that I have completely forgotten. The top page of the bundle is headed "Home Office Croydon," and dated. 3rd of August, 1989, which sends a shiver down my spine. I flick through copies of legal documents, official home office letters, and even pages of my own diary torn out of a desk book. I untie the bundle and start to revisit those eight months of my life. I realize from reading my diary how deeply stressful that time was. How I struggled with my desire to do the right thing, while feeling overwhelmed by how the two Chinese visitors from Maidavale turned my life upside down. The uncertainty and fear they had to endure through those months made my own anxiety seem petty and selfish. By contrast, I felt shame that at times they also had to bear my annoyance and frustration. Becky recently visited Australia and sent me a photograph of a family gathering at her uncle's house on the outskirts of Sydney. Here are Lysuk and Lysam, now in their eighties but still looking youthful. They sit between their middle-aged daughter and son-in-law and a fine-looking young woman. This is their granddaughter, now a junior doctor, smiling sunnily next to her auntie Becky. Any doubts I had about my role in helping Lysuk and Lysam with their defection evaporate. I gaze at this happy snapshot of an ordinary-looking family seated around the table and think, "I'm now sure I did do the right thing." The Visitors from Maidavale by Patrick Lau was produced by Mukti Jain Campion, and it's a CultureWise production. If you've enjoyed this series, do follow the CultureWise podcast to hear fresh new stories from around the world. Music